Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is about the numbers in your brain. Specifically, it weighs about 3.3 pounds. It's about 60% fat, which means it's one of your fattiest organs. But especially if you're a woman, probably not the fattiest organ. But you probably didn't know there are 100,000 miles of blood vessels in your brain about four times around the equator of the earth, which is kind of cool. And you've got billions of nerve fibers called axons and dendrites, which you've heard me talk about before. But did you know there's about 100 billion neurons in your brain, but they're only about 10% of the brain. And they have that power because they reach out to 100 trillion plus trigger points, which is what you could call a neuron forest. And your brain can make about 23 watts of power when you're awake which is not quite enough to charge your iPhone, but you maybe could if you weren't thinking. And everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words, What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Your brain processes information at somewhere around uh, one mile per hour (laughs) up to 268 miles an hour. And what that means is they're actually measuring how fast electrons flow in the brain, which is kind of cool. So you can think both both fast and slow, as uh, the title of a famous book would tell you. All right, that was some cool stuff about the brain. And if that wasn't a case of foreshadowing, where I tell you what we're going to talk about on today's show, then I've never foreshadowed. But before we get into today's awesome topic, what if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. 
Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's guest is Dr. David Feifel. He's a master clinician, a certified neuropsychiatrist, and very accomplished brain scientist who founded the Kadima Neuropsychiatry Institute in San Diego in 2017. After having been a full professor of psychiatry at UC San Diego for more than 20 years, and there's a couple things we're going to talk about today. Uh, one is that 10 years ago, he developed the world's first ketamine infusion program for psychiatric disorders and integrated it into the UCSD Center for Advanced Treatments. So we're talking about one of the first guys using ketamine in psychiatry this way, which is really, really fascinating. And because that wasn't enough for him, he's also one of the top guys looking at transcranial magnetic stimulation and ketamine and the brain. So you wanted more brain hackers, you got more brain hackers. <laughs> Dr. Feifel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here. How do you feel when I call you a brain hacker? Good thing, bad thing? Uh, I think it's a good thing. Uh, you know, I, 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 love, I love everything about the brain. Uh, I was really, uh, it, was a great, it was a great intro, uh, all those facts about the brain, because uh, I, I just think it's, it's uh, it, I'm obsessed with it, it's, it's cool. So, um, you know, I'll, t I'll, I'll take almost, uh, almost any uh, description that, uh, that involves the brain, and I'm okay with it. Uh, you definitely love the brain, because you've written more than 100 research papers uh, and book chapters and whatnot. Uh, on different brain functions and have really been at, at the forefront of your field for a long time. And I always like to know, what drives people to do what they do? Why did you become a preeminent brain scientist? What, why that? That's a, <laughs> you may regret that question. Um, <laughs> you know, when I was younger, uh, my, my first sort of, um, my first intellectual um, awakening, uh, you know, you kind of, you're a goofy high school student and the one day you start to think seriously about things. But my, my first intellectual awakening, um, was reading about quantum physics and realizing that, you know, scientists like really serious scientists, um, are, you know, we're saying that the reality around us is, uh, the, you know, these guys were hardcore physicists, uh, reality around us is not what it appears to be, and if you, I'm sure you're you're aware the uh, the the standard um, what they call the Copenhagen interpretation of uh, of quantum uh, physics is that consciousness uh, actually uh, is responsible for creating the material world around us. Now that's a crazy thing for a bunch of serious scientists like Niels Bohr's to say. And I thought that was so cool. And I was basically so, so, you know, I became really interested in consciousness. And, what, you know, once you start thinking about consciousness, it leads you to the brain. And one thing leads to another. And, uh, you know, um, a few decades later, I suddenly find myself uh, doing uh, in medical school, doing an MD, PhD program, uh, and wanting to be, uh, you know, a psychiatrist and neuroscientist. So that's the short version. <laughs> did you actually clinically practice psychiatry? I did, yes, St and, and, and do. <laughs> Are you you're still actually see, see patients? Yes, yes. 
Uh, I'm, I'm in my office right now. There are patients. Uh, there are patients. Uh, my colleague is, is treating right now with ketamine. Uh, just, just so, just, just to give you the uh, uh, the sense of what's going on. Uh, well, so you've, you've done a ton of research. I find oftentimes when people are writing hundreds of papers, they're oftentimes in, in an academic setting. They don't see a lot of patients, but you've been Correct. you've been hands on with patients your entire career. Then yes, you know when I when I when I uh, when I came to UCSD because I was I was primarily interested in research and I didn't I, I didn't think that the the clinical practice of psychiatry was all that interesting, but I thought the the, the research aspect was 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 great. Uh, along the way, um, I fell in love with the clinical work, and um, all my uh, senior. Uh, all my mentors said, you know, um, as soon as you get enough grants, buy yourself out of the clinical work so you can focus on uh, on the research, and uh, and that's a it's a very common thing in academic institutions that you have very uh, renowned, uh, you know, um, uh, psychiatrists, or really it's true for any specialty, but they don't see patients because they're because they're spending most of their time, you know, writing papers and going to conferences and. Um, and I kind of, uh, I didn't take that advice. I said, gosh, you know, um, I still love research, but now I have this newfound love for clinical work. And uh, so uh, what I'm going to do is exactly what everyone tells me is the, is the worst thing I should do. Uh, and that is I'm going to actually really try and do both well and spend a lot of time doing both. And, I, and, I, and, I, and I've done that. Uh, it's not been always the easiest thing, but I'm glad, I'm really glad that I have. How do you define the the line between psychiatry and psychology uh, for people who are listening because it seems like there's always some overlap there dealing with a past trauma and a psychologist would put you on a couch but in psychiatry you might do something different but how, how do you in your own mind and how do you tell people the difference you know it's 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 really arbitrary i would even i would even include in some ways neurology you know yeah. these are these are sort of um arbitrary uh, divisions that have come up over the years due to, you know, political issues or just sort of by, or sometimes they're just historical. Um, and I think that, um, you know, if you think of, uh, of Sigmund Freud, I mean, he was, the, he, he's in many ways the father of uh, psychological interventions, but he was also a trained neurologist. And he, uh, he believed that, that, Ultimately, you know, all these disorders that he was trying to address were were seated in the in the structure of the brain, but that at the time, around the turn of the century, they just didn't have the tools to directly intervene. So he believed that the the, the, the therapies that he was developing were sort of a uh, an indirect way of uh, doing biological modifications of the brain. He, he wrote he wrote something in. Uh, I think it was in uh, 1893 on the, uh, about the sort of the you know scientific basis of uh, psychotherapy, and it was very you know it was very, it was it was very much neuroscience. So uh, you know I think that we're all dealing with uh, mental states, and some uh, because of economic forces and insurance and so forth, you know psychologists and and because of their licensing limitations, focus on trying to change the brain by exchanging meaningful sounds with patients, and those sounds are words, you know. Uh, and psychiatrists have uh, tended uh, in the last uh, uh, four decades or so, have, have sort of moved away from that and tended to focus on trying to change the brain by exchanging, you know, uh, magnetic pulses or chemicals uh, 
transfer them into into patients' bodies. But I think at the end of the day, it's uh, it, 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 the the distinction is uh, is a gradient. I am so happy that that you said that. I I've always had a hard time really telling the difference. That when I set out saying something's wrong in my head, uh, and I feel like I, I'm failing out of Wharton. Uh, which I didn't fail out of Wharton, but I think I came kind of close. Something's not right. And I ended up seeing a psychiatrist first, uh, fortunately, because I wanted quantitative data about what's going on in my head, uh, not necessarily to go see a, a psychologist and talk about what's going on in my head. But I, I think there's great value in that. And I've had great value from it. So I never, I, I wouldn't know if a friend called, say, who should you call a neurologist? And what you're saying is that, that it's all on the spectrum. So it depends where you want to start. Um, okay, that, that's helpful. And the direct interventions on the brain, neurofeedback, neuromodulation, uh, transcranial magnetic stuff is is very cutting, aid, cutting edge. And in the that sphere of brain hacking, I would put electrical stimulation and magnetic stimulation as some of the most cutting edge things out there. But you can buy home equipment <laughs> to do uh, electrical stem on your brain, which I started doing 20 years ago, full disclosure. Uh, and magnetic stimulation you can buy for 500 bucks and up online. Uh, does that scare the crap out of you? Yes and no. Um, yeah, uh, it, it, it is a little scary that, that, that uh, lay people now have the ability to, to directly alter their brain. You know, I, I think that the brain has generally a, uh, a homeostatic mechanism that uh, from a lot of these things that we, uh, you know, where you, where they're accessible to people at home probably are limited in, in how much severe harm they could do. Uh, so we haven't, we haven't yet any uh, released any, anything into the, uh, into the public market. That's, uh, you know, when, when, when people are, are doing self ECT, uh, then I'll really get, I'll, I'll really get worried. But so I think, I think that a lot of the things so far are fairly benign. Although of course people will always say, Hey, you know, we don't know the long-term effects of these things like trans, uh, transcranial, uh, uh, stimulation and so forth, uh, but they they seem to be low voltage and uh, and uh, on the other hand, I'm not so sure just how you know effective they are in terms of their selectivity. So I think that some of the the the, the, really, the things that I'm really interested in, in the field in the directions of the field, I hope the field goes, I think are going to be much more sophisticated and not the kind of thing that will ever be uh, available to the public. I have over years, I've had my own EEG for, for 20 years, usually more than one. And, and after a certain point, I realized that it's probably not that wise to do brain surgery on yourself. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so I, I ended up uh, opening, starting a little company that does uh, EEG neurofeedback uh, in Seattle, just because I needed access to someone who's going to tell me what to do, because I can hook the electrodes up. But if you're part of the loop there, uh, there are some forms that are generally supportive and good, and 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 you can do those without expertise. But it, it, I also wouldn't work on my own race car if I was going to be driving it because I probably want a professional mechanic. And and that's where I, I look at uh, I look at the role of neurologists and and psychiatrists uh, to help us improve ourselves. But I've been really frustrated, uh, uh, Doctor Feifel. Usually, if you go to a psychiatrist, oh, there's something wrong with your brain. And let's see if we can fix it. And I'm not that interested. I don't think there's much wrong with my brain today. I just want a brain that's twice as fast and twice as smart and will live 10 times longer than Mother Nature wants it to be. And it, it seems like whenever I ask for that, I get the response, well, more tests are needed. I'm like, well, let me be the test already. Come on here. So where is your field 
on helping us get Professor X brains versus just heal depression, which is worth doing, obviously. That uh, field is uh, generally falls under the, the term neuroenhancement, which yeah. is very interesting because starting about uh, 10 years ago, there, there began sort of a, a public, uh, let's say, a, a, an open uh, discussion among uh, brain specialists about whether this is uh, ethical and, uh, and, and something that neurologists, psychiatrists should do. It, there's a controversy, um, but, but a lot of people, and including there was an uh, ethical committee from the, uh, uh, one of the neurological s- uh, societies that, that looked at this and came to the following conclusion. They said, look, it may not be the best uh, use of uh, physicians because traditionally the physician kind of heals and takes yeah. pathology and, and tries to remediate it. But but just like uh, you know cosmetic surgery, it's not unethical. And if a neurologist <clears throat> or psychiatrist could add uh, a quality of uh, of life to somebody, there's 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 nothing inherently wrong with that. That wasn't uh, that wasn't uh, uh, accepted by everybody. It did it did provoke a lot of um, disagreement. But uh, so it, it is a controversial thing. But you know the brain is interesting because. It's different than any of every other organ because if you have a kidney, right, and your kidney is 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 performing what it needs to do. I mean, it's you know it's clearing the toxins from your blood. You know that's all that's all you really you know that's that, that's fine. I mean, there's no point in, in making it do to clear twice as much blood volume than you actually have in the same amount of time because it really isn't going to impact your your ability to function. But the brain, I mean, when is it when is the brain good enough? You know what I mean? It's uh, the brain is 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 how you know is a heart and soul of who we are and how we perform and what we accomplish. So so it's never uh, you know there, there's never a parameter saying well this brain is um, you know it's 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 serving its purpose because uh, there may be normal uh, we may we may find out that a brain is in the normal distribution, but um, can, it, it, can you ever not uh, benefit from a brain that's performing a little better? I don't think so. What is the brain's purpose? Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you, uh, there's many answers to that, but, but, but as a segue into ketamine and the psychedelic drugs, yeah. I'll give you one of the uh, explanations. And I think, and this is sort of counterintuitive, but it's, it's been my, it's, this is sort of a conclusion I've come to by, by listening to a lot of people who've had very profound uh, life-changing um, experiences uh, taking uh, uh, ketamine, which is a psychedelic drug, and and also from their experiences with other psychedelic drugs, I think the brain. I think one of the brain's major functions is to filter out reality. There's there's a there's a reality uh, that's out there that is uh, uh, counterproductive to our ability to do what we do in this world, and that is to sort of uh, advance and reproduce and to and to propagate the species. And so I think I, I, what the brain does is it filters out some of the, the, the really profound uh, appreciation of, uh, of the world, and it puts it into a categorical, uh, everyday kind of uh, uh, knowledge that we, that we have. And I, I, I realize this because you know, I think that what the psychedelic drugs do, and, 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 and it's interesting that there's so many different pharmacological mechanisms, and they all seem to produce very similar subjective, ex- profound subjective experiences where patients will come back and they will feel 
that they had this, uh, this profound understanding of reality that occurred under the influence, but they don't feel it was like some sort of, uh, you know, inebriated or intoxicated uh, phenomena. They actually feel that the, the curtain was lifted and they were able to appreciate the true reality, the reality in which um, we are not categorical. We are, the, the world does not fit into verbal uh, uh, labels and categories, but everything is connected. And, and, it, and, and time is not this linear, uh, unidirectional thing. And uh, when they come back and the drug starts to wear off, the brain, uh, the, the brain comes back online, at least those parts of the brain that are, that, whose job is it to censor, you know, like think of them as sort of the uh, Chinese, uh, you know, bureaucracy that makes sure nobody uh, learns about the world outside, you know, through the internet. And it comes back on, uh, not to pick on China, but any sort of, mm -hmm. sort of uh, authoritarian kind of uh, regime, comes back on board and, uh, and realizes that, uh, you know, some, some information from the outside world kind of slipped in and it works very quickly to try to, um, to eradicate any, uh, any knowledge from the outside. So um, I, think, I think a big part of the brain is to, um, is to uh, filter out reality so we, can, so we can experience a different type of reality where we are each separate creatures uh, trying to advance our own sort of uh, personal goals. I think another, uh, just to, uh, I think another big part of the brain, or at least the, the let's let's say the, uh, the the human brain. You know, people think about um, about all the wonderful things that the human brain can do, but I think one of the the most important uh, differences in the human brain than the brains of other animals is the fact that it uh, it prevents. Uh, um, it, itself from doing a, uh, a lot of the things that animals do. In other words, um, the, I inhibiting inhibiting impulses, inhibiting sort of emotional reactions, so that we can select a better uh, behavior, so that we can uh, you know delay gratification. That is huge, and that there's a lot of processing power that goes into the human. Uh, you know, cortex, especially the frontal cortex to produce that what we call executive function, which is really just, you know, don't, don't react to, to, to impulses coming from the lower brain, or at least don't react right away. Think about it. And that's, uh, that, 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 that was a huge evolutionary uh, advance, I think, allowing us to, uh, to, to accomplish all the things we have as a species. It's awesome that you're talking about not reacting to impulses from the lower brain in the same conversation we're talking about psychedelics. And I, I did ayahuasca with a shaman around 1999 in Peru, and I didn't try any psychedelics till I was 26 uh, and found an occasional use seemed to be uh, neural enhancing for me under the right conditions, probably not at a rave, <laughs> you know, right. there's this recreational use. Then there's the, let the brain see something it didn't see before and then come back with more. Right. And that's what we refer to as set and setting, uh, you know, in yeah. psychiatry, how, how the same, the same drug, the same pharmacological agent can have a very different effect on you, uh, depending on your expectations and the setting. And, uh, so if you're going, uh, and you're expecting to have this cool, you know, euphoric experience that, uh, you know, it's just kind of a kind of way to kind of blow off, blow off steam, uh, for, for a night. You're going to have a very different experience than if you're, if you're expecting to, to uh, open yourself to something, uh, profound. It actually makes me really happy to see that, that we're now thanks largely to the maps Institute and, uh, Rick Doblin, who's been on the show. We're looking at MDMA for clinical trials as a medical use thing. 
And we're now looking at psychedelic mushrooms where we know they raise brain-derived growth factor and, and some other things. But what's been missing from the conversation the whole time is ketamine, which yes. has similar effects and right. is 100% legal for anesthesiologists and physicians to use. My wife's a medical doctor who did drug and alcohol addiction and knows ketamine really well because she used it on patients you know, in the ER. And uh, but it can be used the same way. And here you are. Oh, yeah, I did that in 2008. So yeah. <laughs> but it's just missing from, from a lot of these conversations about all these illegal substances where you don't know what quality you're getting. But we can get a pharmaceutical grade ketamine that has a short life in the body and has some interesting neurological effects. Why did you start doing this in 2008? Why'd you pick ketamine? Well, first of all, I, I think you're, you're spot on. And before I go back and, and talk about uh, how I started, uh, it's, it's sort of a pet peeve of mine that, you know, there's all this uh, attention about psilocybin and MDMA and LSD, which I, I'm really thrilled about. And I'm really excited at the prospect that in a few years, I'll have, I, I, I could potentially have those uh, in my armamentarium to uh, to add to ketamine, but what's frustrating at the same time is that uh, is that a lot of the uh, the, the people, uh, um, uh, Michael Pollane, for instance, uh, in his recent book, um, you know, talks about psilocybin and LSD, and uh, I think the, the the sort of the 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 missing uh, piece there is the fact that ketamine is essentially a psychedelic drug at the doses that we use at the sub-anesthetic doses. And the exact same things, or very close to the same kinds of things that he describes um, throughout the book, you know, patients uh, experiencing is what my patients experience. And in fact, there, there was a study done not too long ago that, that gave um, uh, subjects um, ketamine and LSD and uh, psilocybin, and I believe also MDMA in different orders. They randomized the orders, and after each experience, had them rate their experience on a on a, on a scale that basically breaks down the psychedelic experience into eleven elemental kinds of uh, 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 phenomena. And if you look at the ratings uh, between psilocybin and LSD. And uh, ketamine, they, 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 they very much overlap. I mean, some of them have, you know, particular, you know, um, fortes, if you will, like ketamine is, is scores stro most strongly on, on uh, the uh, disembodiment uh, uh, um, scale, which is the uh, out of body. But uh, that, the three of them uh, r uh, look more closely uh, overlapping than MDMA, which seems to be more, you know, uh, euphorogenic. Than sort of uh, profound, uh, you know, in the classic sense, uh, psychedelic or or or, or um, you know, mind enhancing. So, um, if there's not, if there's if there's one thing I really would uh, hope that um, uh, this podcast sort of starts to promulgate is the idea that ketamine and a lot of my colleagues don't who are aware of ketamine's remarkable uh, impact on depression and what a great breakthrough is. Are, are surprised when I say it's a psychedelic because they think of it as a dissociative anesthetic. Um, so I'm glad you, I'm really glad you brought that up. But going back to how I got into uh, starting ketamine, really it wasn't, uh, I had no idea it was actually a psychedelic myself at the time. I was just frustrated. I was, um, I had part of one, part of why I uh, was excited about uh, uh, going into psychiatry was that I felt that in my uh, career span that psychiatry would go through a, a kind of amazing revolution the way that um, 
thoracic surgery had gone through in the 60s with, uh, with people like uh, uh, the, you know, uh, the Bakey and uh, doing transplants where they learned to take a heart and put it into uh, somebody else. And I thought, wow, we're going to do amazing things because neuroscience is, is really expanding and brain scans are becoming more powerful. So I wanted to be part of, of that, uh, this, that tremendous uh, uh, you know, uh, advance in, in the brain and hoping that it would uh, really lead to greater understanding of who we are and the world around us and the quantum physics and blah, blah, blah. But then you know, years go by and I was getting really frustrated because I realized that you know, I'm still using the same tools like the antidepressants uh, that essentially were no more effective than the ones that were de developed in the 60s. And, we, you know, psychotherapy that, you know, really had about, the, uh, you know, really wasn't advancing. And, and it was very frustrating. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize that, that we, we have dozens and dozens of conventional antidepressants, um, but not a single one of them has ever proven to be more efficacious than any other one, uh, including one of the, the, the very first ones that were discovered, uh, you know, uh, in the late 50s and early 60s. Like, like Depernil, are you talking about? Or Yes. What, you know, like a, yeah. a, 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 a mipramine, uh, Tofranil was one of the first ones and uh, the MAO inhibitors. Uh, by the way, do you know the do you know the anecdotal story of how antidepressants were were discovered? Uh, with, I, I uh, don't, but I love Depernil. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, interestingly enough, you know, uh, I'll, I'll just uh, I'll just give you uh, the the quick version here. Uh, yeah. uh, tuberculosis, uh, you know, it, you know, in the earlier part of the uh, 20th century, was a scourge, and uh, there was no treatment for it. So people were put were placed in these. Um, in these sanatoriums, what they were called, basically quarantined from society. And, and uh, you can imagine the high rates of uh, depression in these miserable places. And they uh, developed this drug called uh, um, uh, isoniazid, which is a precursor for one of the mainstay, main, mainstay treatments we have today called ipronizid uh, for tuberculosis. And they introduced this breakthrough medication for tuberculosis into these sanatoriums and one of the things that they 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 unexpectedly found, in addition to you know improving people's um, uh, infected tuberculosis infections, was the fact that suddenly people's people people's moods were were, were becoming more. I remember the, uh, the 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 newspaper New York Times article, Sunny. They were having more of a sunny mood, and people were perking up, and they were actually demanding you know activities from the administrators. They they didn't know what to do, and why was the, this suddenly happening? And some people actually became manic, which is always a sort of a, uh, a signature of a, of, a, of a bona fide antidepressant. Well, they analyzed the uh, isoniazid, and they found out that one of the properties it had was it, it broke, it, it inhibited this enzyme called monoamine oxidase. And it was already known that that enzyme is a major enzyme in the synapses of, between neurons that, that is responsible for breaking down monoamines, which is serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. So... People, people realize that, wow, you know, if, you, uh, if, if, you, if this drug, isoniazid, prevents this natural enzyme from doing its thing and breaking down these neurotransmitters, thereby increasing the levels of these monoamine neurotransmitters, they, they, they figured that if we, we, can, we can develop drugs, that, uh, that other drugs that do this. And that was really sort of the tricyclic antidepressants and the MAO inhibitors, which were the first uh, medication. It was also the, um, the impetus for the... We now the theory we now know is really pretty much bunk. The uh, abnormal brain chemistry explanation of uh, depression, which um, you know was went like this. So if these drugs increase 
these 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 chemicals, depression and and, produ- and produce an antidepressant effect. Depression must be uh, the result of low levels of these chemicals. And yet, in fifty years, we've never really found uh, any compelling evidence to support uh, the fact that uh, people with depression or any other uh, disease have abnormal uh, brain chemistry. Uh, so it's a much more complex story, but the myth still continues, especially, I think, uh, uh, I think it was a very useful expedient uh, story for pharmaceutical companies because it was a way people can understand their drugs, uh, drugs work. So, um, <laughs> getting back to, I was just very frustrated, you know, Dave, I was like, this is, this is, I think I'm going to, I think I miscalculated. I don't think that this revolution is going to happen during my career. I think it's going to be the residents I'm teaching. And, uh, and, and, you know, the, you know, the pharmaceutical industry is not producing anything more than just me too drugs. And they're all focused on serotonin or adrenaline doing the same thing. And not one of them is what better than the other. And then, uh, so I, so I became very, uh, you know, I started to, I started to scan the, the, uh, the horizon for anything new. And, and, uh, and, and, and the two things that I'm involved with now both came, you know, both emerged, um, around, um, 2006 to 2008. Um, the, uh, TMS was, was, uh, I've been, I've been keeping my eye on that for, for many years. I thought that was really an exciting new, paradigm shift in, in, in treating uh, uh, brain disorders and to address what you were saying and to enhance, you know, uh, brain function. And that was first, uh, the first FDA, uh, the first uh, TMS device approved by the FDA came out in 2008. And I jumped all over it and convinced my department to get it, even though they was, the chair was not very, <laughs> thought this was some boutique. Uh, I, I literally had to, I had to underwrite it with my re- my my discretionary research money. I'm not kidding because nobody thought this would go anywhere. And the, you're talking about the ten ton magnet that goes over the, the really big one. The uh, it's called the it's called the Neurostar. It's like a big dentist chair. Yeah. And uh, you know it's, you've got this. Uh, it's repetitive TMS. It was the first uh, first commercial TMS device that um, you know that that uh, for for indicated for treating depression. And it was around that time I was reading um, you know the one of the first papers from NIMH, from Carlos Arati's uh, lab about uh, ketamine and this remarkable improvement in depression um, in people with severe treatment-resistant depression within hours. And I said, I actually was skeptical and I wanted to do research on it. But I said, before I invest in doing research and, uh, you know, getting, getting uh, you know, IRB approval, I'd like to see whether this is really as amazing as these papers sound. Because, you know, sometimes in research papers, you get statistical significance and it seems really cool. But then if you actually talk to the people, it's like, eh, yeah, it helped a little. So um, uh, I, I actually convinced uh, UCSD's, uh, uh, the, the powers that be, it took, me, it took me many months, but I convinced them to let me start treating people with it. The rest is, as they say, history. So I, I was just looking at something from a, as a clinician, better tools, and I had no idea that, uh, that this would lead me back to my original uh, sort of impetus from going into field, and that is sort of uh, being uh, an explorer of uh, consciousness. Both of those techniques, uh, using the, the large magnets on the head and using ketamine, are out there. Have you sat down in the chair and put big magnets on your own head? I have. Uh, as, part of the tr- okay. as part of the training, we make everybody who gets sort of certified in the... Uh, in the device, uh, sort of experience what it's like, so they can uh, they can uh, they can relate to it. How about ketamine? Have you used uh, ketamine to go into other places? Well, uh, the 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 honest truth is, I haven't yet. 
I look forward to doing it, <laughs> and I haven't yet. And um, there's a couple reasons for that. One of them is, you know, it's a very controversial practice. Oh, yeah, very. And uh, there's a lot of people um, you know, who, you know, in, in established psychiatry and medicine and uh, elsewhere who who really oppose the idea of uh, starting to starting to give they feel it has a lot of p- potential but we should study it for the next 20 years before we actually uh, you know treat anybody with it so i one of the, the things th- I, those people by the way they piss me off <laughs> okay a, like seriously 20 years before we can do any real work with something oh sorry they're like speed bumps in in the evolution of humans sorry <laughs> Well, Keep going. You know, <laughs> so um, I realized that this is a very fragile kind of field. And um, what I didn't want was to uh, play into that. I, don't, I didn't want to be a Timothy yeah. Leary. The second reason was um, I kind of feel like I, I'm in this privileged position where I'm the scientist and this sort of ground control. I feel like I'm, 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 I'm ground control in Houston. I have all these patients who go off into these amazing places and they come back and they, and they report to me. And I've actually we have a, we've created a special forum that, that after every trip, a patient, uh, patient fills out this survey. And tell, tell me it's called the special K forum. Uh, it, 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 it actually started out something like that. And then we, we should, in, in case this ever gets published, we should give it a little bit more of a formal name. So we, we call it the, uh, the, the PES, the Psychedelic Experience Survey, it was something uh, cool. more along uh, the uh, uh, Special <laughs> K uh, uh, moniker originally. Um, so so I, I, I get to go from room to room and talk to people about these trips. And it's like, and, and I feel like I'm, uh, I'm, tr- I'm, trying to, I'm trying to help bring this knowledge back from this other uh, awareness to, to, into the uh, mainstream. Because I feel like I'm, I'm an academic and a scientist, but also, uh, you know, a clinician and, and, and somebody exploring yeah. these, uh, this, this, this really remarkable phenomenon. I could see both sides of that. When I interviewed a professor from Vanderbilt who's been studying oral nicotine for Alzheimer's since 1988, he says, oh, no, I, I've never used it. I'm like, how could you not take something you've been studying for 20-something years? Uh, but it, it, in terms of academic rigor, you can make that argument, and it's it's worthy of respect. And I'm I'm mad because my plan was to have just experienced ketamine for the first time before I interviewed you. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, my executive producer uh, for the show uh, and I went down uh, to see an anesthesiologist, regenerative medicine friend of ours, uh, who's also just been on the show, uh, Dr. Uh, Matt Cook. And he uses ketamine in his practice with uh, stem cells and other things like that. And she has a horrifying fear of needles. And she's a very courageous, you jump out of helicopters kind of personality. But, but you show her a needle and her eyes roll up in her head and she hits the floor. And <laughs> Wait, this is an she, anesthesiologist? Uh, he, he's an anesthesiologist by training, uh, but okay. now he does regenerative medicine, okay. fixes shoulders and stem cells, okay. and he's he's branched out. But he's you know, years, years and years doing anesthesia. with. Uh, so who has the fear of needles? Um, my executive producer. Oh, I for thought the, the anesthesiologist did it, which I thought. Oh no, no, no! That's no, a strange saying, no. career choice. No, okay, that would not gotcha. work. <laughs> but, but so I was going to go down and do ketamine, but he said, "Yeah, we can use ketamine to help her get over that." So we actually shot the video of her doing ketamine for the first time, and she does it, and she had an IV for the first time in her life without full body convulsions wow. and you know, punching people, and, and none of this was behavior she chose. She was kind of embarrassed by it. And you could see she was terrified and she she picked her hand up and she looked at the needle and she pushed on it and she said, 
my fear is gone. And, and she's, she's free. Wow. And the, the difference from one little treatment, yeah. there was somebody that had just pushed on her for years. Um, it was to the point, I'm, I'm a professional biohacker. She's trying to film me and saying, I can't look at the needle because I'll pass oh out. And so gosh. she's trying to film me without looking. It all passed with one dose of Isn't ketamine. that crazy? Yeah. I see that. And so I was going to do it next, but she ended up taking all the ketamine. <laughs> she, she took all the time we had available. So I'm going to do it with them another time. Uh, so I, I can also say I haven't tried ketamine either, but I've tried you know, DMT in the form of ayahuasca and most, you know, psilocybin and LSD interviewed Stan Groff about it. So none of these have I used super frequently, but all of them have provided value to my life. And I, I write about those in my next book. And so it's, it's one of those things where functioning adult human beings are capable of using these on an occasional basis with intent to probably do some good. But I want to ask you, because you're studying this stuff, and ketamine, I think, is a horrible party drug. But is there a downside to using ketamine therapeutically at these lower doses where it's not just a full-on sedative? I mean, is, is this something that's really dangerous? How dangerous is it? You know, it, um I actually have data um, to support this because okay. because one of the, uh, the frustrations I've had is the fact that um, the the naysayers that we were talking about um, and and you know I respect look I, I think that in, in in medicine there's 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 need for 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 a healthy conservative approach because there are things that can uh, we can we can be a little bit too enthusiastic about and and in, in the history of medicine. There have been things that, uh, and it seemed initially to be, you know, really a wonderful breakthrough, and then um, uh, we moved too fast, and they ended up causing a lot of harm. But yes, I think there's this has there, there, there's a balance there, and uh, my frustration has been that the naysayers uh, in their editorials and so forth always say that you know we you know we have to we have to go very slow because we don't know the long term effects of these medications. And a lot of the treatments, like the treatment for depression requires repeated administration. It's not just a one-time thing. The, this, the unfortunate thing, and one of the things that we're all working on uh, addressing is that uh, the, this amazing therapeutic effect, which can be instantaneous or you know, within, within, within minutes and hours of a treatment, will wear off like dialysis. And I call it psychic dialysis. It's amazing. You know, somebody can just uh, you know, imagine that your, your executive producer walks in with lifelong uh, fear of needles, one treatment and the fear is gone. But with, the, with things like depression and oftentimes with uh, uh, anxiety, it'll slowly come back. And then, you know, she'd come back again and then it would be immediately just like uh, kidney dialysis, you know, uh, so right. it's dialysis for the mind. But um, so they always talk about we don't know what what will happen if you give this over and over again, which is what's required and which which people like Fifel and other people are starting has started to do. Uh, and we could get addiction. Uh, we know that people who use it uh, uh, illicitly uh, you know, and use it frequently in high doses um, uh, can, can get um, uh, bladder damage. And there could be, uh, you know, psychosis and so forth. Um, so what we did, my colleagues and I did, because now there's a whole, uh, there's 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 quite a number of providers, unlike when I first started, who are who are doing this on a regular basis and have experience of hundreds of uh, of patients, who many of whom have gotten it for for months and years. So we created a survey, and we uh, we did it very legitimately. We got it to run, ran through the UCSD IRB. And it was a survey of uh, the major providers. And the survey was, you know, okay, how long have you been doing this? How many people have you treated? Uh, you know, and here are the major concerns, addiction, 
uh, bladder issues, cognitive decline, uh, psychosis, uh, etc. And we we asked them how many of this have you, how many of each of these have you experienced, and how many people have you treated? And we're, we're we've presented this at a, at, uh, at an international conference on ketamine in Oxford, and we're writing up the manuscript. But the the the, the results are as we each individually expected, exceedingly low, exceedingly low. In fact. Um, there were nine reported cases where, where, the, where the doctors felt that there was some evidence of addictive behavior. And when you look at the details, none of them um, can be attributed to ketamine. You know, the patients either had pre-existing, uh, you know, uh, addictions or, um, and that's nine out of 6,000 patients. So uh, the rates are just, you know, better than many, many, some better than some things that you can buy over the counter. So um, my own experience of doing this for 10 years and talking to my colleagues, um, if it's done in a clinic, and I think there's a distinction here because the, the only mm-hmm. three, uh, the, the only cases that, that, that seem to meet the criteria of possible addicting be- behaviors as a result of ketamine were, were when the doctors were actually prescribing home use, like intranasal use. Mm-hmm. Because what happens there is um, people get an immediate but short effect, and it feels good. I mean, they feel free of their symptoms, and and then it goes away. So they want they want to feel that way again, and they do it again, and then they get tolerance, and then they're using higher doses, and they're running through their prescription faster. You know, it becomes more intolerable to 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 be anxious and depressed when you know that there's something that can take it away, and then that kind of often leads to to some some bad behavior, and there's been cases of at least one case where, where, where some, a case report in the, in the publication uh, where a patient was uh, driving, you know, while kind of, you know, experiencing a bit of a dissociative effect. So, but if we, if we limit it to the classic way of these, the way these treatments are done clinically in the clinic, given as, let's say, an infusion, or I, I tend to do a lot of intramuscular now, um, there's really been no uh, adverse effects reported. Uh, and I've had people now on it for uh five, six years. Uh, and it's fixed their depression. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, patients who basically has, it, 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 it's taken them from being suicidal to, uh, you know, living a very full and complete life. Um, and they, they return on a periodic basis. Some of them have just stopped coming in. Every time I hear something like that, and then I hear someone else say, more study is needed, let's wait 20 years. Like if you're that person and you were going to kill yourself and someone says, wait 20 years, Man, yeah, my, my pay- <laughs> you, you got to look at the risk reward balance, and if you're one of those people, the risk reward is yeah. clearly in favor of doing it now. You know, one uh. of one of my patients actually, and I, I think by the way, risk reward is the key to medicine. It's it, it you know you have to no no, no it, it's not it says right there thou do first do no harm, which is a terrible <laughs> <It's wrong>. motto. <laughs> It, it, first of all, that I, I hate that motto because <laughs> yes. first of all, it's a it's a bunch of BS because. The only way to do no harm is to do nothing. Amen. <laughs> so the only and so every time you go under the knife, there's a chance of harm. So why do we have a motto that we never even practice? And here's the other uh, thing: uh, a lot of times, what that motto really means is "do no harm to me, the physician." I'm not willing to stick Ooh. my le- neck out and do this, even though probably makes sense for this patient to get this treatment. I don't want to be the one who is uh, is out on the limb doing this. So a lot of times patient, doctors are very, 
you know, skittish about doing something that's not really falls within the sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the accepted dogma. So I don't like that. Uh, I don't like that, uh, that motto. I think the reality is, as you said, what medicine is, is, is balancing the, the risks and the benefits and allowing a patient, assuming that they have, uh, you know, capacity to, to make a, a, a decision as most people do, allowing them to make the decisions, you know? So uh, yeah. I, I really believe that uh, I don't have this, I, I, I can't make a decision for somebody who's suffering uh, and is willing to take a risk because this quality of life is, uh, you know, it's just, it's not something they want to continue. It's easy for me to say, well, this could, this could harm you or, or even in the worst case scenario, kill you. Uh, so, you know, you shouldn't do it. But if you feel like your life's a living misery every day, um, you'd want to take, I'd want to take a reasonable chance, even if it meant, you know, it, it could go the other way. That's high integrity medicine uh, right there where, where the patient gets to decide and you, you help them to make the best decision possible. But, uh, if it, it, it makes me sad that we've created a scenario where your license may be at risk uh, when you help a patient and that's unacceptable and that that will get fixed because otherwise people will stop going to doctors. Yeah. And they'll, and they'll find <laughs> yeah. other ways of getting uh, yeah. the treatment, you know, uh, uh, which th I think happens now uh, uh, frequently. Yeah. I don't like it that I have to buy some research grade chemicals <laughs> to get my body to I, what I want I, to do. I don't, but, I hey. don't like it either. I'd much rather you come to me and I can prescribe something that's been, you know, uh, that's been, you know, analyzed and the manufacturing process has been vetted by the FDA. And you know that each time yeah. you take it, it's going to be you know, same, same quality, same dose and, you know, and unadulterated. I, I, I love your mindset there. Uh, now let's get back to ketamine and, and in my neural enhancement world, which has it's been a big part of my life for 20 years. And, and it's part of what we do at the, the neuroscience uh, EEG feedback clinic. There's three things I'm targeting my own brain. Uh, I'm looking for neurogenesis. I'm looking for synaptogenesis, and I'm looking for myelinogenesis. So I want more neurons, more synapses, and more insulation around the neurons to make my brain function better. As long as I don't get so much that my brain functions like a bowl of spaghetti, which is the downside of that sort of stuff, uh, to put it in medical terms. Right? A technical term, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so uh, ketamine, though, in 2010 came out. Uh, there's a study about ketamine in 2010 that came out. Uh, from Yale that said it improved depression, but it also caused new synaptic connections between neurons in the brain, which is kind of the holy grail of making a brain that's better than mother nature uh, uh, maybe wanted me to have. And people have said for years, it's because it, it blocks NMDA receptors. And for the neuroscience geeks, they'll know what that is for everyone else. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, but then in 2018, uh, you talked about saying, I don't think that's why ketamine, why ketamine works, that it might not be because of NMDA. So how does ketamine actually work? Is it because depressed people get new synapses that cause their brain to fire in a different way? Is it because it's blocking some sort of NMDA or some other chemicals? Like walk me through the, the layperson pharmacology or mechanism of action so we can all understand that. First of all, it's important to know that uh, anytime somebody tells you how ketamine works, or for that matter, how any antidepressant or any psychotropic <laughs> works, or how 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 what causes depression, uh, you should know that they're blowing smoke, because <laughs> <laughs> I love <that>. because the <laughs> truth is, and it's embarrassing for me, you know, uh, sort of a uh, you know a student of the brain for you know you know three decades now, you know, the, it's embarrassing to say we just don't know. The brain is ultimately a mystery. I mean, how does 
I mean, just think about this. How does any of this stuff, all these uh, 85 billion neurons and the, uh, and the chemicals and the electrical firing and stuff, how does it, how does it create any, anything that we subjectively feel? Love, hate, uh, you know, uh, awareness. Uh, it's just, it's an ultimate mystery. So we talk about correlations, about what, what, what we can see happening in the brain that goes along with this. And even there, it's so much extrapolation. So yes, um, the right now, and I've seen so many, so many things sort of be the trendy, you know, thing that this is the, you know, down regulation, uh, up regulation of receptors and so forth. Um, so right now, uh, synaptogenesis is, um, you know, thought to be a good thing and, um, uh, and, uh, has been proposed as a mechanism for the, in fact, a paper just came out. Dave, uh, you know, within the last month, showing that all the psychedelic drugs uh, share the, a, a, a common ability, except ibogaine, interestingly enough, share a common ability to produce rapid synaptogenesis. They're like fertilizer for, for the brain. And so um, everyone is, um, and I've seen headlines saying, you know, scientists have discovered the reason why ketamine and psychedelics, you know, have their amazing therapeutic effect. I cringe a little bit because so many times I've seen us think that it was this and turns out that it has nothing to do with that. So yes, it's an interesting, um, we see that that happens. It, it, common, it makes common sense. Uh, uh, it, it's common sense to intuitively believe that uh, if you, you know, if you're able to, to cause brain cells to make more connections and to myelate more, you know, it'll do good salutary things. But the truth is, we just don't know. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, um, one of the important things that happens in the, uh, in the maturation of the human brain and the mammalian brain is that there's actually a loss of uh, synaptic connections, something called pruning that occurs you know, you know, uh, around, uh, 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 you know, adolescence and, and, and continues on. And if that doesn't happen, in other words, you ha we have, a, we, we start off with a lot of uh, connections and then they get pruned down basically for, you know, in terms of um, uh, ones that aren't used, get pruned down and the other ones get strengthened. And, and there's a lot of, uh, of abnormal um, uh, uh, brain states like uh, autism that are, have been implicated in a lack of pruning down. Now they have more connections and they have more cells, uh, and yet um, they clearly, uh, uh, that's not a good thing in, in those cases. So I'm very wary of, of simple explanations like, you know, depression is abnormal brain chemistry or, or, or deficit in your serotonin or something like that. I wish we knew, but we are just scratching the surface. And you can look at, if you, you can always look at the question a number of ways. You can look at the receptive pharmacological, what it does, you know, NMDA, the psilocybin and the LSD, they work on serotonin two receptors, which are, you know, is a different mechanism. Or you can look at uh, you can look at it more in a global functioning way, like I described uh, earlier. They, what they basically they all do is they f up the 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 the, the function of the brain that that kind of filters out um, uh, our awareness of 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 certain realities, the connections between things. So, you know whether you know whether it's through NMDA or serotonin two A. Uh, maybe a better way to look at it is more at the psychological level or at the high, the, the meta-functioning of the brain um, rather than the molecular level. It's really fascinating that you say that. 
there's a certain class of, of people, I call them science trolls, and, and their basic mechanism of action is that didn't happen because it can't. And, and the it can't comes from via known mechanisms of action. But if you look at almost every medical intervention that is shown to work clinically over the past hundred years, the story that scientists have told themselves about why it works is almost always proven wrong 20 years later. It doesn't change the fact that it worked. So we have this sort of scientific arrogance that says, well, we know how everything works. And I think we might know about how maybe 2% of people of things in people's bodies actually work. And the rest of it, we're still pushing that. But that doesn't mean we should withhold useful therapies from ourselves because we, we don't have a clear story about how it works. You, I just like the story leprechauns. I, I don't know. Maybe it all works because of leprechauns. I, <laughs> but does it work is the first and foremost thing. And then we can decide if it's leprechauns or not. It, but but that's a, of secondary order academic importance. If you can just say, is there efficacy and is there safety? And if so, let's start helping people, especially people who are suffering greatly, because otherwise waiting till they're dead so we can be sure we're safe doesn't seem very safe to me. Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's really a um, uh, one of the one of the shortfalls of uh, institutionalized medicine. I mean, it's, it, you know, the fact that, that medicine got organized had a lot of benefit. I mean, you don't have sort of the traveling uh, the snake oil snake oil salesman, salesman yeah. you know, and, you know, and get who knows what what you're getting and, and what it's going to do. Um, but on the other hand, it can get so organized around uh, guidelines and things like that that uh, there's no longer uh, any ability to really innovate, and and there's so much fear about stepping outside the bounds. And ultimately, uh, it comes down to um, you know just a, a beating a dead horse here, but about the risks and benefits for a given individual patient, you know their their quality of life. Talk to me about the typical dose of ketamine that's producing these antidepressant effects. So the typical dose, um, we we dose it in uh, by weight, um, and um, uh, you know the the typical uh, uh, anesthetic dose is probably um, uh, you know four to eight milligrams uh, per kilogram. The uh, the dose that uh, we use starts anywhere from a quarter of a milligram. Uh, is 0.25 milligrams per kilogram uh, up to you know two sometimes two and a half three milligrams per kilogram. Usually when we're, we're giving it at that high doses, we're actually usually giving it in a couple of uh, two injections to extend the the trip. So this is really interesting, and uh, you know this is this is where ketamine and and I think the other psychedelics uh, diverge from the classic um, paradigm of a medicine where it doesn't matter how you feel about the medicine or whether you're aware that you're getting the medicine or whether you're in a coma or you take it before you go to sleep. When we get the medicine inside your body, it's going to do its things. It's going to, you know, it's like, let's say an antibiotic. The antibiotic doesn't Mm -hmm. care, you know, whether you're prepared uh, for, for, for the experience or not, it's going to go and it's going to, uh, it's going to, it's going to kill those bacteria. But with, uh, with, um, with ketamine, um, and the other uh, psychedelics, um, your experience is paramount. So that when we've been giving ketamine for years as an anesthetic, nobody jumped out and said, "Oh my gosh, all these people that were that were 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 putting under for surgery are waking up and their depression is gone." And uh, and we've discovered something for years. Nobody knew that until we started. Uh, giving administrations at sub-anesthetic doses where people are actually conscious 
through the experience and experiencing it. So isn't that interesting? I mean, it's like you would expect it that, the, you know, in classic paradigm of medicine, you're given a higher dose when you put people under, when you use it as a full anesthetic, they should have had a stronger antidepressant effect. But because people were asleep and they didn't experience the, uh, the, the trip, so to speak, uh, and it's really funny because in my progress notes <laughs> every day, I write, you know, you know, you know, patient reports, a, a really pleasant trip, you know, I, you know, like, cause I, I, there's no, there's no better medical term that, that that's more appropriate, you know? So, uh, it's funny that I, that I'm writing trip in all my, uh, all my medical, my medical, my formal medical progress notes for patients. But, um, so, so this is really interesting and you have to actually be awake and conscious to experience the effects in order to get the therapeutic effect, which is so cool. You could almost term this as a, as a microdose of, of ketamine, right? or it's, it's a low dose, it's similar to LSD. If you take a full dose, you're going to trip. And if you take a low dose, the microdose, you get a very different effect, which is generally cognitive enhancing uh, for, for some people. And, and Depranil, the antidepressant from a long time ago, you take it at full dose, you get all sorts of stuff. You take very low doses for anti-aging and you get a totally different effect. That's right. And, and we have a history of looking at high dose and saying, well, then if it does this, let's ban it or let's, let's pigeonhole it. But it, I think playing with the dose curve and looking at the patient's experience is, is really cool. And you, know, you were one of the early people to do that in clinical practice, and you've, you've seen some phenomenal results. But let's, let's talk a little bit about magnets on the brain. And this is another one of those things where you say, talk about woo-woo stuff. You, you get you know, crystal pyramids and magnets. But I, we've got gear from Bulletproof Labs where you put magnets on your bicep and you watch someone's bicycle twitch, twitch, twitch. You're inducing an electrical current on cell membranes with magnets enough to cause your arm to move. So you can say magnets don't affect the body. You're just wrong. Like for any skeptics listening, like we know this. We know this medically. But you're focusing these on the brain to cause the electrical activity in an area where there might not be enough. How do you do that, and how do you know where to put it? Right, that's that's the, that, that's great, and 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 it's really unfortunate that 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 in a way that we're using that magnets happen to be one of the best ways of doing this because they they carry so much baggage uh, as this sort of hocus pocus kind of thing, you know. Uh, uh, but we're using them in a very very uh, legitimate uh, physics informed way. In fact. Uh, the, the basis of, uh, of, of magnetic treatment, for example, the, the main treatment is transcranial magnetic stimulation, transcranial for crossing the brain, magnetic for the magnetic, and stimulation being stimulation of the brain, is, uh, is, a, is a concept called Faraday's Law. You know, Michael Faraday in the uh, 19th century discovered, he was, a, he was a physicist, and he discovered a very important principle that if you, if you have a pulsed magnet, and the key here is a pulsing magnet, in proximity to anything that can conduct electricity, you will induce current in that material, copper wire or, or whatever it is. Um, so when you see, if you ever see those, uh, you know, those, uh, those high school science fair projects where a kid is riding a bicycle and making a light bulb light up, he's doing that because they've rigged the, the, you know, the pedals to turn a magnet around copper wire. Okay, so it's a generator essentially. It's a you know a generator, and uh, and that's what uh, that's what how we use you know dams and waterfalls. They turn big turbines, which are you know uh, magnets, you know um, around wire and produce electricity to light up uh, uh, you know cities. So um, so we so and since the other thing is since since brain cells, neurons, these these hundred billion or so that we you mentioned at the 
uh, at the outset are essentially wires, organic wires, we can use Faraday's principle to cause those neurons to fire as, as if they, and that's what they, and that's what they're there. They're, 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 they're built to fire. They're built to, to produce a, this current, this, uh, uh, this, this chemical gradient is there. It's a current that's like a battery. You know, you, you know, batteries work on differences between different ions and they, and, and they, and it, and, it, and the current runs down the length of the, of the axon gets to the end. And the only strange thing about the brain compared to any other, you know, wiring system in a, in a building is that the wires aren't directly attached. There's a little gap and it requires chemicals to be released when the, uh, when, 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 when wire fires and to, to, to float across and to connect in a very specific way to the next wire. And there, those chemicals can either produce, uh, if the conditions are right and there's enough of them being released, firing in the next one, or it can inhibit it. So, so the, the idea of using pulse magnets is not, uh, a way out. It's really based on solid principles of physics. And the idea was, uh, you know, we know that the language of the brain is the mysteriously is the, is, is the firing, the, the, the pattern of firing. At any given time, you've got these 100 billion, a little bit less than that, about 85, 86 billion uh, neurons. They're firing in different circuits. And they're not all firing at once. They're firing in patterns of circuits. And if you take a snapshot at any moment of the firing pattern, that correlates with our experience. If we're if we're remembering uh, a romantic, uh, you know, high school relationship, you know, and one day we're nostalgic, that's because you know circuits that that connect to our memory association areas uh, are firing. If we're um, if we're experiencing you know horrific fear, that's because circuits associated with our limbic system or amygdala are firing. So firing is the language of the brain, and we know. That in in every uh, you know brain disease or you know psychiatric condition or neurological condition there are, there are certain nubs or, or uh, you know nodes in the key circuits that aren't firing correctly they're either firing too much or too little and so the idea was rather than drop uh, you know a pill in in people's guts uh, you know in their stomach that will get absorbed throughout through their blood system go everywhere in their body and, and interact with all the uh, organs and produce side effects and then cross into their bl- into their brain and, and bathe the entire brain just to kind of correct some firing in a certain area. A more direct way would be to use this, uh, this Faraday's principle and direct a pulse magnet at the area that's firing abnormally and to physically go in there and try to correct it. And we know we can do that. Now, the key is... And there's some great that de- you can you can you can Google um, you know TMS and you can find some great uh, demonstrations of uh, of people in labs you know putting um, uh, a magnet over their motor cortex which is the part of the brain that controls the the body and if you place it here which is the area that controls you know the 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 contralateral arm the person's arm on the other side will move. If you move it over to where their legs are, their, their leg on the other side. If you move it over to the other side, the other side of their body part. It's really great. It's a part, like a party trick, you know? But, but, um, <laughs> but um, that in itself is uh, not enough to create a, a, a correction of the brain. But what it is, is we learned that if you do this over and over again, um, y- there, there's, there's this plasticity that occurs. Uh, and if you use high frequency pulses, you can produce what's called long-term potentiation. It means 
it's it's like exercising. It's like getting a personal trainer for uh, you know a um, part of, a part of the brain that's uh, overweight and sedentary and out of shape. It's not going to start doing exercise on its own. So you need to get a personal trainer and you need to you need to pull it out of the house, force it to kind of do you know uh, do some calisthenics and and jog and slowly over over weeks. The, the person's physiology will change. Their cardiovascular system will get stronger. Their muscles will get stronger. They can run uh, more than 10 steps with the get, without getting winded. And then the personal trainer can go away and there's a much higher chance that uh, you know that person will continue to exercise on their own because it's not such a big bar to doing it. So that's what TMS does is we target the areas. For example, in uh, in, in depression, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to pull my brain out here, my Model, model the, of the well, brain. You assume it's a model. It could actually be one of my uh, unsuccessful, uh, <laughs> less than successful patients. Uh, <laughs> um, there's a there's a uh, there's a section right here towards the front called the uh, dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, and uh, especially on the left side, we know that that plays an important role in a lot of things, especially regulating mood. And we know that when the activity is low, there people are more vulnerable to to stress and, 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 and depression. When it's high activity, they're more resilient. So, so for depression, the protocol is target your magnetic pulse at this area specifically, uh, day in, day out, and over, over several weeks. And just like somebody who's on a weight loss program, a fitness program, they will start to get uh, in shape, will we'll, we'll, we'll do more on their own, and then you hopefully they're off to the races. That's the kind of the principle. As a fan of neural enhancement, uh, the two primary ways I'm exercising my brain, aside from movement and brain you know, exercise and whatnot, is I use high-frequency or high-intensity light on the brain, which can cause some, some changes in the brain. And uh, it, it basically becomes stronger over time. And I use neurofeedback, where I can train the parts of the brain that aren't firing at the speed or with the strength or at the frequency that I want so that they'll do more. Uh, and I'd love to add... Uh, magnetic stimulation and so I can do even more of that. Are we to the point where you feel comfortable that there might be an application for TMS for those of us who want the brains of bodybuilders? <laughs> I think so. I think we're getting close uh, uh, to, uh, to that. I, you know, uh, in medicine, usually the first focus is uh, pathology, you know, abnormal. Oh, yeah. Uh, because there's a lot of reasons for that. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a more straightforward uh, path, regulatory path to produce something for a disease. Uh, I think commercially there might be, uh, you know, might be more, um, you know, uh, from a business point of view, uh, easier to, to, to make that a viable business. But, uh, but then uh, there's often, uh, you know, there's, there's uses that then go beyond that to performance enhancement. So, so we already know that, um, that, that, that you can do a lot of very interesting things with magnetic stimulation, including improving your memory. You know, if you, if you target it to the hippocampus area, yeah. it's been shown that people will, you know, have an, will have at least a, a short-term enhancement of their memory. Um, we, you know, there, there, there are things that you can do to shut down areas that might be uh, that might be uh, holding you back, like you know, er, you know, ang areas that, that where you're overly anxious about things or have social anxiety. So I think that it, you know, one of the things that I, I think is so exciting about TMS right now, it's 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 you know, I think we're in the infancy, and and, and people will look back and say, oh my gosh, like what are 
you know, 2018, I mean, they were, you know, they were like dinosaurs. They were using these, these uh, big hulky machines and targeting these, these, uh, these just one area at a time, but the, it's so unlimited because the concept, the concept is uh, pretty straightforward. You change areas of the brain, just like if you had a multi-band equalizer on your, you know, stereo. I don't know if stereo was back in the day, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. when I was in high school, and you had all these. Uh, you can adjust the treble and the bass and all these different, you know. And so that's what you can do with with TMS. And so you can really wow. you can customize it for for whatever uh, you know a person needs. And uh, you know, there's just te- there's there's some technical limitations, but they they should right. be overcome because it's just how. How do we get deeper? How can we do more than once? And you know, when it's just technology and there's a and there's a market for it, uh, pe- smart people come up with ways around it. That that they do. And my goal is actually to be abnormal <laughs> because I mean, I, I want a brain that right. is above average, Absolutely. so I can do more important things, right? Uh, and one that's happier than normal, so that like like it seems like this is what everybody uh, wants on on some level or another. Uh, and so abnormality is a goal as long as it's the right abnormality. And that's the risk in all of this Correct. stuff, right. uh, as we talked about at the beginning. Well, I've got one more question for you, Dr. Feifel. If someone came to you tomorrow and they said, I want to perform better at everything I do as a human being, what are your three most important pieces of advice? What would you tell them? That is, that's really, uh, that really interesting. You know, my inclination... My my brain is going towards the social sphere uh, because I think at the end of the day, you know, we are social creatures. Uh, whatever you do, it, it always involves other human beings. Other human beings are always yeah. sort of uh, sort of the the gatekeepers to your your success. So you have to you have to you have to you have to prove to other people that what you're doing is valuable and they have to like you. So I would say. Being a better person uh, in terms of your 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 interactions with other people, um, it, it really can unleash your 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 accomplishments and your success. We don't we don't operate in vacuums. Even the most nerdy engineer uh, can't really get uh, much traction on the most amazing invention if nobody will listen to him or people won't cooperate in terms of that. So I think that, uh, you know, people who, people who really genuinely and not, not like a psychopath, you know, who can manipulate, but if, but if people who can really connect with other people and, and communicate and uh, make people really uh, admire them and like what they're doing, you know, that, that, that goes a long way, even uh, many times compensating for, for, for deficits in other areas. And uh, that kind of brings us back to the, uh, to the, to the psychedelics. I think that, 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 that the psychedelics have that ability because what a lot of the patients, mm-hmm. I, before we go, I, I, one of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to read you some of the survey um, uh, cool. responses from some of my recent patients. But, but, a, but a lot of the theme that I get from people is love and connectedness. And I just feel you know, and forgiveness, people who they really were, they're really pissed at, you know, it's like, okay, I see, I see this issue in a bigger picture. And, and there's this, this, this uh, transcendent sort of uh, kind of forgiveness. So, so um, may not be sort of the very specific response that you were looking for, but I would say social, and then executive function, because executive function 
is really the 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 master function um, uh, uh, you know that sits above all the other functions. And by executive functions, I mean that 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 unique uh, CEO uh, function that exists primarily in the frontal area of our brain. That's the most recently recent evolutionary uh, development, um, and that um, th- and that really uh, uh, inhibits uh, sits at the head of the table and inhibits. Um, the the impulses to to act um, from all the other older areas and allows us to be a little bit more thoughtful about um, about those feelings and uh, not just act on them impulsively. Um, so you know, I was just I was wa- I was watching the news the other day and uh, and it was talking about this this this, this trend this uh, you know of um, of posting videos. Um, to try and shame parents like soccer moms and dads who just lose it, you know, and they start fighting with each other over their kids' games, you know, because uh, the refs are and and they would never normally do that, you know, and and usually when they, it's the idea is you post it and they get and they get embarrassed and this is to sort of inhibit their from doing this in the future. And if only they are executive and I and I can totally see myself acting in that way at times. So I'm not, uh, you know, I, I totally I totally get that. If we if we were a little more, um, you know, if our executive function was always um, as strong as it might otherwise be, we would never put ourselves in those embarrassing situations. We'd always give more thought to. Um, you know, what we are doing and just a little bit of the, you know, I used to do a lot of uh, adult ADHD treatment. In fact, uh, I started the first um, adult ADHD specific clinic for adult ADHD at UCSD in 1995 when it was just people started. Wow. And uh, it was so cool because you could change people's lives uh, overnight with, with these stimulants. And one of the, my first patients uh, was this remarkable lady who was a science fiction novelist, but she only had published one, maybe two novels, but she had like 33 that were two thirds done. And then she just kind of lost interest and couldn't do it. And everything was disorganized and her, 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 her desk would pile up and, uh, and be, and she just didn't know what to do. So she would, ta- she would open a cardboard box. She would start a new car, throw everything in there, tape it up and write and write you know, the date on it and start fresh. Well, when I gave her, when I gave her the, um, uh, I put her on stimulants and uh, she came in uh, follow up and I asked her, so do you, what do you think? Do you think it's making a difference? She says, you know, I wasn't convinced until um, it was, it was Monday. I was seeing her until yesterday. And I said, what, ha- what happened yesterday that made you convinced? She goes, my husband knew from the beginning. He just said, you're totally different. This drug is making a totally, you're, 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 you're listening to me. Your, your eyes aren't darting around. And I said, well, what about you? She says, well, we, we, we play Trivial Pursuit every Sunday. And um, he always beats me, uh, even though I know more than him. And I said, well, what was the difference? She goes, I, I never had patience to sit and think about it. So I blurt out the first thing that came to mind. And, and on the medication, I actually just sat and I would think about the options. And I realized that I, I could eliminate a lot of them. And I won for the first time in, in memory. And my husband went and said, Oh my God! You cannot deny that the medication is. And I said, "Yep." Yeah. And so it's just that little bit of um, a little bit of uh, inhibitory power. So I would say I, I, I'm not going to give you three. I'm going to give you improving our social uh, uh, brain and improving our executive function. I think with those two things, uh, people uh, people are just going to you know just going to kill it. Well, if it makes you feel better, I just did. Uh, I just finished my my next book, uh, Game Changers. 
And I measured what all sorts of high performers from all sorts of places uh, came up with. As so, we have a, a survey of 500 people saying what matters most. Uh, you're you're not you're not too far off on that. In fact, the two of the two of the three big buckets were were smarter and faster. And uh, the, the stuff you talked about there is in there. So all right, you're not alone in in that advice. But it's it's profound and useful advice. And of course, getting there. If you're listening to the show, saying how do I improve executive function? How do I improve? My social environment, that takes some work, but it's work that's doable if you know it's important. So th- thank you for sharing that, Dr. Feifel. My pleasure. And your work is uh, can be found at your website, which is kadimanp.com, K-A-D-I-M-A-N-P.com. And of course, that'll be on social uh, and on the show notes and things like that for, for people who'd like to, to check it out more. But it's fascinating work you're doing. Thank you for pushing the boundaries of using ketamine, magnets, and all the other cool stuff for making uh, brains that have problems work better, and hopefully soon brains that have no problems but still want to work better do it. My pleasure. It was it was a lot of fun talking to you. Thank you for for uh, being a, an advocate and a and a master communicator of uh, of uh, of all the brain uh, advances we're making. Being somebody who kind of uh, lets the public know about about these things. You got it. Thanks again. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.